0: You are listening to inspiring stories of ordinary people doing extraordinary stuff. Welcome to the Doolanders. Hit
1: it! That's what I'm talking about. Wait! Okay, now, from the beginning.
0: Hit it, boys. Okay, welcome to the Doolanders, episode 15. Look, we really, truly hope that you are happy and healthy in these
1: crazy times. How are you, Nick? I'm pretty good, thanks, Blake. Despite the craziness, I've got to say the challenging times have been made a whole heap easier in the last couple of weeks here in Melbourne. Kids not at home, kids back at school. Kids are happy, parents are happy, people attending my Zoom calls are happy because my youngest daughter is no longer turning up in a Tutankhamen outfit in the background. What's that all about? I think it's just um, a magnetic force that um, these new technologies, the video technologies, have created, mm. whereby if you get on a video call, yeah. kids will be drawn to you. Lights, camera, action, she's yeah, on. She's on. Tootin' Carmen. Tootin' Carmen, Dolly Parton, Mermaid, the Pope. Hang on a second. <laughs> so
0: have you got these these outfits just lying around, around the home?
1: Dolly Parton. She's a very inventive young girl and, yep, she's just making it up as she goes and – that's the only time she'll really uh, come up to the study and and not say a word, just yeah. sort of hang out in the background yeah. and make herself known. How old's Elk? She's six. How does Elk know about Dolly Parton? Well, I don't think she knows who it is, but she just knows, I'm going to put on this outrageous wig, yeah. dress, and shove a whole heap of stuff up my top. <laughs> <laughs>
0: and sing a bit of, not too fast.
1: <laughs> I love it. Hey, mate, who is this week's guest? This week we have Nikki Greenberg, who, apart from the amazing things she does, she also has the best hair going around. The best hair in the suburb
0: of Elphington, at,
1: at the very least. Or is it broader than that? I think it's broader than that. I'd say Southern Hemisphere. I think so, so due to the, the lockdowns, because if you're tuning in a year late, this is October 2020, and Melbourne's still in stage four lockdown, we had to do the majority of our recordings remotely. And so, prior to getting on the video call with Nikki, Blake and I had a wager as to what colour hair uh, Nikki would be sporting that evening. You went
0: pink. I went blue. It
1: turns out we were both right. Both right.
0: (laughs) No doubt about Nikki. Absolutely super cool. She is. so tell us a little bit about what Nikki does.
1: So she's an author and illustrator. Yeah, in particular uh, for children's books, and she published her first illustrated book at the age of fourteen, but didn't actually think that was uh, a career path for it. So ended up going into into law. Yeah, um, as a more was I guess it's a more dependable career path in her eyes and. Ultimately, the calling was too strong for for something that was her passion. Yeah, you're right.
0: She'll talk about the compulsion, the compulsion to tell stories, to want to write, to illustrate, and that never left her from the ripe old age of 13, 14 where she pushed out this series of books called The Digits – which went on to sell some crazy amount of copies. Do you remember how many? It was in the hundreds of thousands. Over uh, 300,000, 380,000 copies, that thing, at the age of 14. (laughs) Amazing. But that compulsion and that passion and that want to write never left her. And today she is a a super talented and super accomplished author and illustrator. Can't wait for you to hear this story, Doolanders.
1: So without any further ado, here is... Nikki Greenberg. Now, just a quick note, to landers on the recording quality. Because we were recording all of these interviews remotely, we do have a few sound issues, but a quick call-out to our man, Mal Owens. Say that three times quickly, Blake.
0: Our man, Mal, our man, Mal, our man, Mal.
1: Who has helped clean up the audio a bit. Uh, apologies for, for that, but I'm sure that you'll still love this interview. Blake, do you like stories of people doing... I love stories of people doing, Nick. Well, if you out there like stories of people doing and you want us to make more stories of people doing, then like this podcast, subscribe and tell your mates because the more people we have listening, the more episodes we can make and that's better for everyone out there who's doing or wants to do. And as Arnold would say, do it. I thought he said I'll be back. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Nikki Greenberg, welcome to The Do-Landers. How are you?
2: I'm really well, thanks, Blake.
0: Hi, Nick. Hi, Nikki. How are you?
2: Very well.
0: Hey, um, Nikki, thank you so much for coming along The Do-Landers. We're we're so super excited to talk to you about um, all of your doing. So tell us and tell The Do-Landers, what do you do? So
2: I'm a writer and illustrator. Um, Mostly I do children's books, so picture books, novels. I've done some non-fiction and some really big graphic novels that aren't really for young kids. How big are these graphic novels? So they're, they're pretty enormous. They're, there are two of them. The first one is a graphic adaptation of F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby. So it's 300 plus pages, very detailed pen and ink illustration. And the second one is a real whopper. It's Hamlet. It's a very unusual graphic staging on the page of the full text of Shakespeare's Hamlet, 427 pages, lavish
0: colour illustration. And, you know, um, fortunate enough to have a copy of Gatsby here, absolutely amazing work, Uh, and we'll get into what it takes to produce creations and um, works of art like this um, a little later. But, hey, the art of writing and illustrating, it. It takes immense passion. I'd imagine some crazy discipline and commitment. When you think about, you know, passion, discipline, and and commitment, where does that come from in your life? It's a little bit hard to say because
2: I think, uh, as with most writers and illustrators, we're very much driven to do it. It's a bit of a compulsion, but it does take enormous discipline, and that's something that uh, I grew up seeing in the examples of my family. Very hardworking, very disciplined people, yeah. my parents, my grandparents. Um, my my family came here as migrants uh, after the Second World War. They were survivors of the Holocaust, Jewish survivors, uh, who'd been through horrors, uh, unspeakable horrors, and they built a life here and they really they were people who grabbed life with both hands and lived it to the fullest and worked very very hard and growing up with with that kind of example i suppose it seems normal to try very hard to work very hard and and try and do things to the fullest yeah
0: yeah you, you we were talking earlier and you were saying you know you're you come from a a, a long line of do, doers a, a family of doers um your your parents, uh, did they help shape your love of writing or, or did they do, you know, completely different um, things and careers?
2: My mum worked as a lawyer and is actually still working as a mediator and my father was a pharmacist and then became a consultant to hospitals and they were both very, uh, they had their own businesses, those were their own businesses, they were very... Driven and entrepreneurial in their in, in their work, um, so I suppose that's the example that that I grew up with the doers and also I think quite people who like to have a creative outlet, whatever that might be
0: yeah, cool and you were um, you were pretty creative at a pretty young age, weren't you? Uh, tell us about your your want to um, create and write gift cards and how your mum helped you pursue that passion.
2: So yes, so when I was uh, fourteen years old, I decided that I wanted to uh, make greeting cards. And I'd already been – I'd actually been painting and selling T-shirts already. These were one-off uh, designs with puff paint. Anyone who was around in the 80s will remember puff paint. What is puff paint?
0: Uh, what is puff, puff paint? Puff
2: paint is a fabric paint that sits raised up above the surface ah, when you iron it. It goes puffy. They had diamontes, They had puff paint. It was very, very 80s. Yeah. So I'd been doing this when I was 12 and 13 and, you know, family, friends were buying them. And then I thought, well, I would like to design – greeting cards. And I drew up a little folio. Um, I still have them. They're very sweet. They're very, very amateurish. And my mum said, well, why don't we go and see Valentine Sands, who were then a, a big um, maker, manufacturer of gift cards. And she took me along and they probably agreed to see us um, out of kindness to humour <laughs> a 14-year-old who wanted to show her folio. Um but then at the end of the folio, they saw these very simple little cards that I'd done with a fingerprint character. And they said, oh, actually, we we like this. We could do this. And so I did a range of uh, greeting cards for them with these little fingerprint characters that we called the digits. And from that came a series of books. So that no, was I... my first experience in publishing. <laughs>
0: uh, um, uh... Talk to us about Talk to us about the um, the series of books, like, you know, how long was that series? And, um, did you, you know, push it out into market? How, how did, how did that, what evolved?
2: So there was a lot of luck involved really, because I didn't have to write manuscripts and shop them around, which is what, what I have to do now as a, as now that this is my, my job. Um, Valentine Sands had an association with a publisher called Budget Books who did things a bit like the Mr. Men, Thomas the Tank Engine kind of uh, little square format books. And they saw these greeting cards and probably saw, you know, a young author, this is a bit of a novelty, and asked, would I like to write a series of children's books based on these digits characters? And, I mean, would I? (laughs) I was absolutely thrilled so over the school summer holidays, that's when I, I worked on them. There were twelve of these little books, and um, the people at the publisher were lovely to work with and very helpful in in making sure I had consistency right. But really, my memory of it is that I had a very free hand with these. I wrote the stories, and then when they were okayed, I uh, I drew the pictures.
1: Right, fantastic. So you got to make the story up and do the illustrations for it? Yes. That's how it worked. And how did you know that what you were putting out, you know, over your summer holidays, you were clearly giving up a bit of beach time or hanging out with friends to do that. How did you know that the stories that you were putting out were what the the publishers wanted and what other people would want to read?
2: So this is a very long time ago because at (laughs) at this point I was 15, so I don't actually remember heaps of that process. Uh, I remember doing roughs, and I worked quite quickly. I still work reasonably quickly, um, and I'm sure I would have had to have the roughs and the and the manuscripts approved before going on with the pictures. But um, but I don't remember that being a, a a difficult process or a process by committee. It all happened fairly um, rapidly, and right. I remember having pretty free reign with it, which was lovely. Nice,
1: yeah, and yeah. Ended up being. a, a Pretty good seller, do you know do you remember how many copies you sold with those
2: there There were a lot of copies there were three hundred and eighty thousand copies of these wow they were they were very little books. they were the kind of thing that sells for you know a dollar or a dollar fifty um, they would sit up on the counters in shops and so they were a really nice little easy buy for kids
0: that's amazing and so you you've you've pushed out this great little series of books. did you think that was you know what lay ahead for you in terms of your career? Where did you head?
2: Well, I didn't really think of that as a career and I guess the it wasn't the major part of my life. The major part of my life was being a teenager and going to school and my social life and yep. so on. And then, of course, I was in year 11 and 12 and it's about doing those, those more demanding years of school and getting into uni and so on. And um, I'd decided I wanted to do law um, which I thought of as uh, a pretty dependable and interesting career so but I mean we make these decisions we make these decisions choosing a uni degree so young it's it's I mean it's kind of mad really it is mad a decision of what career you're going to go into at the age of probably 16 when you're choosing your subjects so it was a little bit of luck that I quite enjoyed working in law.
1: And so choosing something that was, as you said, dependable, was that also coming from your parents' new your grandparents' um, sort of era of just get a job that is stable, dependable, um, you'll never have to worry about it, or was that something that came from you in terms of perhaps seeing other people out there and thinking, well, that sector doesn't, you know, might not hold up for, for the long term, but law's always been around? How did you come to decide on wanting a dependable job over Clearly, having a creative angle to you, or was it just a love of Perry Mason?
2: <laughs> I think. Well, I think it's a bit of it's a bit of all of the things that you've said. So, um, I loved doing my writing and drawing. It was something that I loved, and I kind of did for myself. And I was very lucky that um, this thing with the digits happened. But the thought of having to rely on it and make money out of it and it become uh I I couldn't picture it as a as a career. I mean now it is my career and that's just that's completely wonderful. But I couldn't picture it and I think there was uh a strong sense that you need something to depend on. And I didn't feel uh explicit pressure from my family to do that. But that was very much what I saw growing up, you know, you had to, you had to have a solid career. Um, And I'm glad I did it because it actually gave me a great deal of freedom to work on the kind of projects that I was really, really passionate about. So the great Gatsby took six years all up and there is no way I could have made a living doing that with a book that takes six years to do. Um, And so having a full-time job was actually, it was terrific. It meant I had the liberty, um, the luxury really, to work on a book exactly the way I wanted to without worrying about the commercial side of it. So I'm delighted that I did that.
1: And so what was working in the law like or what were the sorts of skills that you learnt practising law that you could then take on to uh, to doing what you're doing today?
2: I think the biggest one was... Plain language, actually. There was a big push for getting away from archaic legalese and into plain English drafting uh, in contracts and in in letters. And that actually became a big part of my job because once I began to be part-time in law after the first five years, uh, I I was the firm's precedence manager and I was also in charge of plain language training and looking after the style guide and so on. Uh, and that, that, those sort of principles of plain language have been enormously helpful
0: in writing for children. Yes. Fant- yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. And so take us through how you'd been in, uh, in, in your, your gig as a, a lawyer for 18 months. I think you said you took a, you took a year out. You went, um, over to Spain. What was that all about? Just to, see what was going on in the world?
2: Yeah, that was, um, I guess that was my delayed gap year. Uh, I had a fantastic, I had a fantastic uh, overseas experience before that. So before uh, I finished uni, I did an exchange, a university exchange to McGill Uni in uh, Montreal. And it was amazing. And I just felt like the world opened up. It was just the most magical, wonderful experience. I actually met a lot of Uh, fellow comics people there I was drawing comics a lot at the time and that was the the kind of work I was most interested in uh, artwork Um, I also had a really inspiring experience law-wise because the law school there was just fantastic so I came back full of excitement and zeal for art and the law did 18 months of lawyering and thought oh I I really want to go overseas again Um, and I went to Spain and I studied Spanish over there, and loved it so much that I seriously considered staying and living there. But in the end, the the pull of the pull of coming back to Australia was um, won out.
0: Do you remember any of the Spanish?
2: Yeah, I still speak Spanish. Do you? Yeah, I do. I do, and I have a really close friend, one of my housemates, who I met over there, yep. who, who's from um, from Spain. And she and I talk regularly
0: and um, it keeps my Spanish up. Nice work. Um, you'll have to teach us a little bit uh, before we go. So you, you returned from um, Barcelona and uh, you, you mentioned Gatsby a little little earlier. When did that uh, marathon of work start? I think...
2: Been... Toying with the idea of adapting Gatsby even before I went to Spain, and i draw, i put in some time with the sketchbooks, developing the characters, and the characters are very unusual because, of course, they're not human; they're these bizarre, fantastical creatures. Um, but but it is very faithful to F. Scott Fitzgerald's original novel, which I'm absolutely passionate about. So they the characteristics of all of these. Amazing people in the book uh, are kind of written all over their bodies in the way that they look. So I'd, I'd put in some time developing those characters and developing the drawing style a little. And then when I got back from Spain, I got into it straight away in earnest. So the very delicate job of um, interpreting the text, so deciding how I was going to show that on the page where i would be using fitzgerald's uh words using his words where i would be showing things in pictures how the two would play off each other um so i got into that um, further development of the characters bringing it all together it was a yeah
0: very very big job so like got your day job you're out you know perry mason um in across the across australia and how many hours did you, did you put into um, Gatsby? Like it, it would be immense when you think about all of the, you got to, one, do all of the analysis around Jill's work, and then oh, yeah, what did that look like? Was it morning, noon, and night? You're working all day, come home and do all work at night? Or how did it play out?
2: Well, I'm a real morning worker and I'm an early riser, and so I would get up early and do an hour and a half before work every morning on it. And I didn't work at night in general. Uh, After work, I'd be socialising or I'd be (laughs) knackered, Um, but it, it wasn't really work time, and I tended to put in some work on the weekends as well. But I find routine hugely helpful, and particularly when you're working on an enormous project if you just know you're going to sit down every day at a particular time and just do it, um, it comes. You sit down, make the small, very powerful coffee,
0: and the motor just starts running. Great. And um, so, take us to the to the point where uh, you realised that um, you wanted to push Gatsby out into the world, and perhaps you know the the law could take a back seat and. Um, you'd pursue writing and illustrating as a a full-time gig. Did that happen? How how did that play out?
2: That happened very, very slowly. Um, When I was working on Gatsby, um, I didn't even show it to any publishers until I'd done a full 100 pages of finished artwork, and that is fully drawn, coloured, laid out, very detailed artwork so there was an enormous amount of time when I was working on this without any idea as to whether it would be published or not and there were copyright issues which I knew about um it was it it was all a very very long shot but I was very passionate about about the book and once I had that hundred pages and I can't remember how long that that took me quite a long time Um, I started showing it around to publishers and that involved a lot of cold calling, a lot of using any connection I could possibly muster with anyone I'd come across in publishing and, and doing quite a lot of that because it was a really unusual book. Um, people would look at it and say, wow, this is, you know, this is beautiful, really like this, but what what is it? Who are we going to sell this to? Who's this for? What is this? And And what was your answer? Well, (laughs) I'm trying to remember what my pitch was. I did it so many times um, from such a long time ago. But so I would talk about literary graphic novels, which were a huge thing uh, already overseas in America, That Australia was quite slow to or late to catch on to that. Of course, now you don't need to tell quality booksellers what a good graphic novel is. Um, but something that really opened things up was the publication of Sean Tan's amazing book, The Arrival, which was, you know, really boundary busting. Was it a picture book? Was it a graphic novel? Was it for kids? Was it for adults? It's kind of, it, it crosses all of these boundaries. And that was, that book was, deservedly enormously successful and it opened uh, publishers and booksellers eyes a lot here and it then became easier to pitch my book and Alan and Unwin who were actually the first publisher I ever showed it to um five years later said yeah, you know, I'd kept in touch with them. I'd actually done another book with them in the meantime. I was sort of doing some other books while lawyering and Gatsbying. Um, and, and they took it on. They took a, a big gamble on it because it was a very long colour book. In this unusual form and, and it did well. So it was a success for all of us. So, you know, very, very happy. So after that, that's the long, that's the long story that after that happened, I thought, well, maybe I can look at going part time in law so that I can dedicate more time to the next book, which was going to be Hamlet. And I found a firm that was um, amenable to part time. The one I was working at wasn't.
0: And, didn't didn't um, want to uh, didn't want to lose you. <laughs> they lost me though. Didn't they did, <laughs> yeah. Short sighted. Anyway, um, so you went part time, and and from there, uh, so you you've got Gatsby, and after that, you took on a an even bigger project. Was that whilst you were working part time in in Hamlet?
2: Yes. So I was working, uh, four days a week at that point. So I was still doing my, um, I was still doing my mornings before work and, but now I had more time. I had another, I had an extra day. Um, and Hamlet was a massive, massive project. Uh, I did an enormous amount of reading and research for that one with Gatsby. It was, you know my I was locked away passionately with this text, with my relationship with this text. with Hamlet, there had to be a lot of research, so just because this is such a this is a play that's been interpreted so many ways over the centuries by so many people, and you know there there's so much to study with hamlet it's it's inexhaustible. You know, we'll never pluck out his mystery. So I joined the very, very long line of people. Uh, who wrestled with the play, and very it was a fascinating, very, very fulfilling thing to do.
1: So why did you choose um, – so you went from Get Breakups to be a very well-known um well-studied book as well. What made you think, I'm going to go for something that's been studied for such a lot – even longer than that? Um, and as you said, inexhaustible uh, amount of research. What made you choose that over uh, an original piece um, or – Was it a publisher saying we suggest you do something this way, or was it all up to you?
2: No, it was very much driven by me. And these, so these were both um, texts that I studied at school. And I think that um, I think you know, age seventeen, very kind of key age for me. I just remember life felt amazingly intense and amazingly fascinating. And studying these texts, they must have really. Uh, lodged in deep and um I had reread them over the years and I think if you're going to commit so many years and so much thought and passion to a work you have to really love that base text and there has to be a lot to it it's got to be a really substantial text that you can unpack and discover things and interpret and those those two texts
1: certainly have that and so over those long that long period of time especially with with Gatsby do you ever get to a point where you just go god I'm sick of this book I'm sick of this story or I'm sick of this scene or did you just maintain that passion uh for the project the whole way through
2: uh i definitely maintained that passion I never felt sick of it I mean I could be sick of god I cannot draw this horse you know <laughs> but um no I i I loved it. I really loved it. I, and I think that that is the beauty of working with such fantastic base texts is that there is so much to love. You can't get, in my view, you cannot get sick of The Great Gatsby and you cannot get sick of Hamlet.
0: Yeah. And and Hamlet's about obsession, right? So did it become a an obsession for you? Oh,
2: it was, I, the way that I was working on Hamlet tied in so perfectly to the obsessive nature of the play because, uh, well, I mean, I was, I was very, very into it to begin with. But when I, so when I was about halfway through the finished artwork, so 200 plus pages through, another 200 plus to go, that's when I became pregnant with our eldest daughter poppy and so i had nine months to i had decided this has got to be done before the baby um i've got nine months to do 200 yeah (laughs) a really big deadline so you know i was kind of getting further and further away from the text from the desk as my tummy got bigger and (laughs) bigger um you know working through morning sickness like hamlets nausea this is perfect (laughs) um so that obsessive eye bleeding schedule Was very much in tune
0: with with the play, and like you've those two pieces of art, pieces of work, like they have to have pushed you to your limits, right? And when you are you're on self-imposed deadlines, it's really deep thinking, really like outside of looking in, shit. It looks hard. Um, Is there is there joy in it like or does it become like a like a job like yeah how did how does it feel like it when you compare your your gig as a lawyer and then writing and illustrating how's it how's it different
2: oh it's well it's it's very different i get there is joy so to answer your question it is enormously interesting to me. I find it very interesting. I'm constantly learning every book I do. And with a a 32 page picture book, just the same as with a 400 page graphic novel, I'm always learning something. I always have to learn to draw new things or do things in different ways, um, adapt my style. And I always feel like I'm working at the limit of my abilities. I'm always having to push myself and it's always hard, but that means it's always fascinating and fulfilling. I mean there's a sense of, oh I nailed it, I can do it, I can do it. You know, it's um it it's uh it's never dull.
0: Yeah, yeah. Like well, just the brain capacity. Like <laughs> seriously, um it it's amazing. When you um when you pushed Hamlet out into the world, uh and you, you know, obviously you you get instantaneous feedback, right? You know, your work is reviewed, and those reviews are you know public. And um, how did you feel? Oh, great! I mean, the
2: well, your work isn't always reviewed. It's quite hard to get your work reviewed. <laughs> there, are, particularly in um, in uh, areas like. Um, picture books or novels because there's so many of them coming out. So you're thrilled if your work gets reviewed. That's yep. excellent. Okay. Um, because Hamlet was such an unusual book and it was a whopping two kilograms of book. It's, it is a big, thick, heavy, um, very eye catching book. So it did get reviewed a lot and there was a lot of, um, immediate interest in it, which was Fabulous, um, and that happened with, Gats- with Gatsby and Hamlet, and so I was a little bit spoiled by that because that certainly doesn't happen when you put out a picture book. Yeah. There are many, many picture books, yeah. so I was—I yeah. had a, a bit of a charmed um, intro into into well reintro, I suppose, into publishing. Um, so it's it it's great if you when you see lovely reviews and people who get your work and people who appreciate it. It's terrific.
0: Yeah. So you had Poppy and mm-hmm. um, decided to go back to the law be mum and write books. How did your um, how did what you create uh, as an author and illustrator change throughout that time? It changed a lot
2: um, when when Poppy was born I'd taken what I thought was going to be 18 months' leave of absence from work, but then I, I didn't end up going back. And I had assumed that I wouldn't be able to do any writing and illustrating when I had a little baby on my hands. But as it turned out, I was able to. I was able to do picture books. And I was working on the first one when she was tiny. She was three months old and I was I was working on the first of these picture books and i loved it it was something much smaller and more manageable something i could uh do bit by bit during nap times and i was very used to grabbing the the hour and a half just like i had previously done before work and really making the most of that time and so i was actually quite productive and did quite a lot of picture books while uh both of the kids were young
0: and you and you continue to do that today um you When you think about your, what you do and what you perhaps might do next in terms of what you create, um, is it more picture books or you, have you got, um, 12th night or the merry wives of Windsor in you or, um, what, what, what are you thinking?
2: I think that after Hamlet, <laughs> I have had very little desire to do comics, <laughs> and, and it's a and this and comics were and I loved every minute of doing Hamlet, but I haven't had the desire to go back. I've done little comics for anthologies where I've been commissioned, um, but and I certainly never say never. There, you know. But I think that with this kind of work, um, you have to do what you really, what you really have the feeling for, what you really yeah. feel like doing. It is, um, it, it's not a lucrative kind of career for most people, including for me. Um, so you've really got to do what you, what you love and what you're passionate about.
1: So just to explain to our audience out there, is there a bread and butter approach to what you're doing and then you do the bigger type projects um, that sort of have a bigger payday um, down the track?
2: How, how does it work? It's, um, it's really, really unpredictable because really no one knows, publishers are taking a gamble on this uh, all the time, no one knows which book is going to be a commercial success and it, it's quite unpredictable. So really, I just go on the basis of well, here's a story I really want to write. Here's the thing I really want to do. I pitch it to the publisher, um, or and if if a publisher says yes, we think that this is a goer, that we, this is something that that we want to do, then we'll contract and and I'll do it. But every every one of these is something that it's a story I really want to tell, and I've been so I've done a couple of novels, and at the moment um, we're in the final editing stages of a really exciting novel. So that's been – I've been working on picture books and this novel simultaneously, and that's just – that's thrilling. I'm loving it. It's a mystery novel.
0: And is it your first crack at a, a mystery novel?
2: Uh, so I've done novels for kids that have had elements of um, – mystery and suspense in them but this is this is the first that um has a a really strong um a little bit of an agatha christie vibe in it
1: and so now that you've i mean you have an established name with gatsby and hamlet do the publishers know who you are or do you still have to walk in with your two kilo book land it on the desk and say you know who i am
2: um it, it's a pretty small world in australian publishing so right. um and uh we many of the authors and illustrators know each other or 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 have met each other uh through you know industry events through friends of friends um through writers festivals so really wonderful place to meet people um working in this area and so i'm fortunate that you know i, I can approach a publisher which is which is really nice.
1: And how have things changed over the last I mean, because Gatsby was two thousand and six? Is that right? Published in uh, two thousand seven? Two
2: thousand seven, yep.
1: How have things changed in that period of time, thirteen years since that was published with obviously a digital explosion? Um, are publishers out where well, you could you self publish a picture book of that sort of magnitude and have it displayed on, you know, iPad screens and things like that? Is there an appetite for that? Or is it up to you to say, no, I definitely want this printed? What are the options available to you today that weren't available 13 years ago?
2: Um, I think eBooks probably didn't change the picture book market in the way that they perhaps changed the novels for adults market. And... I don't think that the screen is the ideal place for something like Gatsby or Hamlet. They're really very much about the whole experience yeah. of holding and turning the pages of a, a paper book. Um, and really the, you know, the, the book industry, I think has, it's been pretty strong and pretty robust. There was a horrible time of the GFC, horrible for, <laughs> for that industry and for, for everyone. Um, but I think it's a pretty,
0: pretty resilient industry here. And when you think about, you know, what inspires you to, to do, you know, and, and create, is it, is it most of it from within or do you seek outside inspiration? Like, I don't know, you, you write um, and, uh, and illustrate picture books these days. How much of that has come along with, you know, being a a mom and a and a parent, um, does your husband Steve ever you know waltz into some of your stories in some shape of uh, a, a drawing or other? Oh, yeah. My husband Stuart,
2: don't tell him oh, about my other
0: husband Steve. <laughs> I'm sorry. We 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 may or may not edit that out. But um, so how does how does uh, w- what inspires you? How do you come up with what you come up with?
2: Uh I think probably like most people who most people who write, um your brain's a little bit like a magpie. You're constantly harvesting little ideas and impressions and connections. Um, it really is all about making connections. And I've generally got a notebook in my handbag, I scribble down little ideas. Um, and there and I do occasionally in so, in the rare downtime moments, sit down and quite consciously try and generate connections and ideas in in the sketchbook or in the notebook. But I think it is that your brain is constantly on the hunt for little sparks of ideas, sparks of inspiration, um,
0: interesting juxtapositions. Do the kids ever say, "Hey, Mum, got an idea? Can you do this?"
2: Ah, uh, not that often, actually. <laughs> okay no,
0: no. <laughs> all, all right probably <laughs> think oh
2: don't tell her that she'll lock herself away and work
0: some more yeah yeah okay so um we are we're just about out of time but when you you think about you know those people that are um plotting away and you know um locking them, locking themselves in a room and being committed to either you know writing a book or um, pursuing being a, an author or illustrator what what's your advice to those people
2: uh, I think the the number one advice is very much in line with the title of this podcast and that is do if you want to be a writer it's not about being a writer it's about doing writing <laughs> it's about sitting down uh, even when you don't feel like it and just Doing it, putting something on the page. And a lot of that might be rubbish that you throw out. And my sketchbooks and scrap paper pile is full of rubbish that I throw out. Right. Absolutely loaded with it. Right. Um, but having the motor running and making sure you sit down bum on the seat and, and put in the time is, is how you, that, that's how you do it. (laughs) And is it every day? Pretty much. Yeah. It is, it is every day. For me. Yeah. Um, but not everyone has time every day if, you know, not everybody's circumstance permits that. But if you can carve out a regular time um, rather than sort of waiting for the magic inspiration to strike. But if you can carve out, you know, it might be that you get up half an hour or an hour earlier. Um, just to, If you can just carve out that little bit of time and sit down and do it, um, but I, I think that is the the magic.
1: And it sounds like you've got to have a bit of courage as well to follow through on an idea like you did with Gatsby.
2: Yeah, and knowing that that won't always work out. I mean, I've written um, an entire novel manuscript and it hasn't been picked up and that's sitting in a drawer and, you know, some of them you just have to, you know, let go.
0: So it's sit- how long is that manuscript that's sitting in a drawer?
2: Uh Oh, so it's probably about thirty five thousand words. It's a kid's it's a kid's novel. But that's one that is one that didn't make it. And um so I'll certainly have things that didn't make it, and then there's the ones that, that fly and that's you know, that's a wonderful thing. Part of the gig. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you have to you have to be um reasonably resilient about knockbacks in in this line of work.
0: In what you do, yeah. Hey, Nikki, thank you so much for, uh, joining us on the Do Landers and, um, really painting a, I was going to say painting a picture, but drawing a picture and telling us the story of, um, what you do and, and how you do it. Uh, as I said earlier, you know, um, you dropped the great Gatsby around here a few weeks ago. It is a, it is an absolute work of art and, um, you are absolutely, you know, Love your work. So, thank you again for um, joining us on the Do Landers.
2: Oh, thank you. Thanks so much for having me, guys.
1: Thanks, Nikki. Been great to have you See on. See you, Nick. See you, Blake. So, Blake. Yeah, man. How much research are you putting into these episodes? <laughs> wow. Well, look. At times, very little, <laughs> and at times, a little, because you kind of outed Nikki with her second husband. Yeah, that was bad, wasn't it? Sorry about that, Stew. Uh, I'd written down Stuart,
0: but said Steve.
1: There you go. It's a coronavirus in your eyes.
0: It is. I was thinking, listening, listening back to Nikki, that Hamlet quote of to be or not to be. Yeah. And thinking to do or not to do, Nikki didn't have a choice. I No, she didn't. She didn't. Like she spoke about the compulsion to write. And it was really clear from that ripe old age of fourteen that she was that's that was what she was going to do. Yeah. For you know her career uh, and it's her passion and uh, amazing story of how that that compulsion and that passion has always been with her.
1: Yeah, and going and doing studying, practicing law for that period of time actually taught her the discipline required to to stick it out when it comes to to writing a book. And I've got the Great Gatsby right here. You do, and listen to this. <laughs> the magic of podcasts. <laughs> That's a big book, right? That that is not something you just sort of whip up. <laughs> well, you don't. It took
0: years and years and years. And I, look, what was interesting was that she did carve out the, the career in in the law. But what it did is it gave her the freedom to continue to pursue. Yeah. What she was passionate about, and that was amazing, and that she spent her career working with what she, what Nikki quotes as this eye bleeding. Schedule, yeah, like that commitment every morning to get up, do an hour, an hour and a half of work before she starts the rest of her day. Just real commitment to her purpose. And the other thing that I I think you talked about up front and and about Nikki's story, and she, she she spoke in detail about throughout the the app was working at the limit of her capabilities. Yes, how cool is that? She's super comfortable going, each and every day I'm working to the best of my ability and I'm going to get stuff wrong. It's ridiculously hard. I'm pushing myself day in, day, day, in, day out, but
1: I'm continuing to learn and grow. Yeah. She never saw failing as an issue though. No. Nah. No, never did. And let, let's um, actually previous episode, episode 13, Dave Harris. Yeah. He has a quote, if you succeed all the time then you're not trying hard enough. Yeah, and That really sums up what Nikki's doing here, pushing herself with everything that she's doing, not sure if things are going to work. The manuscript, like those manuscripts are, I imagine, very time-consuming. Imagine having that, just poured so much time into that and just going, that will never see the light of day. Well, that's
0: right. She yeah, had that that manuscript that actually sits in the drawer, three hundred pages long, something ridiculous
1: like that. Yeah, I so said let's not quote numbers because we're going to get it wrong. <laughs> I think it was like thirty thousand words or something. Yeah, but I guess the the key takeaways for me were: if you put in the time, it's not going to work out all the time, but it will work some of the time. <laughs> <same>. That's <laughs> yeah, great. It's a, I,
0: I love the I way just, that you've summarised that. Nick, that you did. Okay, I think that's all we've got time for. In this episode 14 of the Doolanders, um, I think it was the Easy Beats that once said, do what you want to do, be what you want to be. Was it the Easy Beats?
1: I don't know. <laughs> I don't think it... Actually, on reflection, I don't think it was. Can you can you take us out with a, a serenade of that? No.
0: No, I can't. Thank you, Doolanders. Hey, if you'd like our doers' stories to be shared with a wider audience, please tell your friends all about the Doolanders. Get them to subscribe to the Doolanders on wherever they get their podcasts from. Like, share, comment, all of those sorts of things. Do. Do. Thank you, Nick. Thanks, Blake. Thank you, Doolanders. <laughs> hey, Doolanders. Doolanders. If you want to hear more inspiring stories and have this show grow to more and more listeners, do us a favour. Can you like, share, rate and review the Doolander podcast on wherever you get your podcast from? Wherever good pods are cast. That's where...